I'm alive. It actually has been so long that this this feels weird. All of this feels weird. Um, but first and foremost, thank you guys for being so patient. Um, I very much underestimated how rough this pregnancy would be. My morning sickness, which has been all day sickness, and my exhaustion and all of that started at three weeks and have really not abated yet at 17 weeks. So hopefully I will get some relief soon. And then to top that all off, our toddler stopped sleeping through the night about Christmas time and is only now starting to get some relief from the night terrors. So it has been absolute chaos in our household for sure. I've been exhausted. Uh, everyone's really been exhausted, quite frankly. You can kind of hear in my voice that I'm starting to get sick because it's just all of this is catching up to me. But please send all the prayers and good vibes that you can. Um, the best news to me is that pregnancy has a guaranteed cure called childbirth. So we'll get there eventually. The other exciting bit of news, other than the fact that I am alive, is that I am now partnered with Redacted Coffee Company. So my husband and I are huge fans of their Black Sight Extra Dark Roast. We've been drinking that exclusively for about a year now, I think. And we even became those really snobby coffee drinkers that grind their own beans every morning. But it's so worth it because it's so darn good. And they do have pre-ground as well, if, if that's your cup of tea. But I will include the link and the 10% off coupon code in the show notes if you want to get some for yourself. This episode is going to close out the series of Sasquatch-related content that I've been doing. But I do feel like we are going to go out with a bang here because my mind was blown several times during this research, not going to lie. So the inspiration for this episode is actually an article by famous Russian hominologist Dmitry Bayanov, and it can be found in Dr. Meldrum's online journal, Relic Hominoid Inquiry. It came out in 2012, I believe. I have no idea why I missed this particular article previously, as I've been a huge fan of Jeff Meldrum and everything that he does for a very long time. But I have become a total believer that information comes to you when you're ready for it. As Freeman Fly says, the journey is facilitated. So I very much feel like a victim of that, but it was super interesting and I'm really excited that I learned. So the primary hypothesis of Bionoff's article is that the ancients knew of other species of hominoids and incorporated these very real physical creatures into their mythology as nature spirits, demigods, demons. I find this idea fascinating. Naturally, really, because I think there's so much ancient knowledge about our world and everything inside of it that has just been lost completely. So this is my attempt to understand the truth behind the mythology. Generally speaking, it is accepted by scholars that satyrs, fauns, the Greek god Pan, the Greek god Silenus, the Hebrew Sa'arim, Incubi, Succubi, and various other names are all approximately equivalent. Now, there are obviously some differences in all of these entities, of course, but the belief is that they have a common origin source, a proto-satyr, if you will that all of these separate cultures described and mythologized in slightly different ways. I will discuss several of these mythological beings separately, but keep in mind throughout the episode that the goal of the research is to find the common thread, is to compare that protosator to what we know of various relic hominoid species, and is to make a determination based on that protosator common thread. Many of us know of satyrs as half man, half goat with the upper body of a man and the horns and lower body of a goat. Modern example of this image would be the character Grover Underwood in the Percy Jackson series, which was played by Brandon T. Jackson in the movies. This, I came to find out, is actually a later depiction of satyrs after they had become very heavily mythologized. The earliest depictions were that of 
naked men, usually in a sexually aroused or uh, ithophallic state. The only indication of a truly animal nature is a horse's tail protruding from an otherwise human body. And even the horse's tail was likely a mythological element used to visually differentiate them from actual humans. Satyrs were credited with a heavily sexualized nature. There is one tale of a boat landing on an island and satyrs descending on the boat. In order to retreat, the sailors essentially sacrificed a woman aboard the ship, giving her to the satyrs to be raped as a distraction. This sexualized nature led to their associations with horses and goats. Both were considered to be highly sexual animals and somewhat still are. We see glimpses of this belief even now in idioms such as hung like a horse or horny as a goat. So from this association, based probably on libido, we can assume that depictions of satyrs with goat or horse parts were merely symbolic representations of their animal nature, meant to convey behavior in a static two-dimensional medium such as pottery. The association with horses and goats may alternatively have been based on sound. Bionoff references a passage from Plutarch's Lives where a satyr was captured and brought to the Roman general Sulla in 86 BC. That passage reads, Here they say a satyr was caught asleep, such a one as sculptors and painters represent, and brought to Sulla, where he was asked through many interpreters who he was. And when at last he uttered nothing intelligible, but with difficulty, emitted a hoarse cry that was something between the neighing of a horse and the bleeding of a goat, Sulla was horrified and ordered him out of his sight. Either way, the horse and goat parts don't represent the actual physical appearance of the entity. The sexualized nature of satyrs also led to the Greek revering satyrs as minor deities associated with fertility. While satyrs, fauns, and lowercase p pans originated from different parts of the Mediterranean, the traditions converged, with capital P Pan becoming a king minor god of the satyrs of sorts. Eventually, Pan became the primary deity worshipped at the Roman festival of Lupercalia, where a goat was sacrificed and young men ran through the streets clothed in only goatskins. In later centuries, the Luperci wore the goatskins as loincloths for modesty reasons, but in the earlier centuries, the Luperci wore the goatskins as capes, with their genitals fully exposed, representing and reflecting the early imagery of the satyrs. As a fun aside, as we move past Valentine's Day, the Lupercalia Festival is thought to be a possible origin for our Valentine's Day holiday that we celebrate these days, not least of which because it was a fertility festival held on February 15th. Now, I don't celebrate Valentine's Day anyway because I think it's dumb, but just know that if you do celebrate it, there is a distinct possibility that you are celebrating a holiday that developed from sexual relations between non-human humanoid males and human women. Pan was also associated with caves, with shepherding, with music via the pan flute, and he was the only Greek god to have supposedly died. But I'll come back to that later once we have a little more context. In both Jewish mythology and the Bible, we have the Se'erim more specifically and demons more generally. Jewish folklore describes demons as being the children of Cain or being created by God at the twilight of Sabbath Eve in the liminal time between the sixth and the seventh days. Per Rabbi Ullman, at twilight on Sabbath Eve, it can't be that he didn't create. It was not Shabbat yet. However, it can't be that he created either. It was no longer a weekday. Therefore, creations at that time were not completely natural nor entirely unnatural. 
There is also a folk tradition of the demons being nocturnal or simply operating under the cover of night. It was said that you should never greet someone you pass in the night as it could be a demon. The most prominent biblical verses depicting this Aram are Isaiah 13, 21, and 22. The modern translations vary widely, but the verses depict the downfall of Babylon and list several animals that will inhabit the ruins in lieu of people. Siem, Ohim, Benaut, Se'erim, Eyim, and Watanim are the animals listed, though obviously I am mispronouncing every single one of those words. Siem is translated as desert creatures or wildcats. Ohim is translated as howling creatures or owls. Banaut is translated as owls or ostriches. Se'erim is translated as satyr, wild goat, or hairy ones. Ayim is translated as hyenas or wolves. Watanim is translated as jackals, dragons, or serpents. As you can see, the translations vary so considerably that it's hard to select just one translation that can properly convey what is meant. Part of the issue is that most of these words are only used in these verses, or in only a couple other verses with equally vague context. Generally speaking, though, Jewish scholars feel that the common characteristics of the animals intended by the original text is living in deserted areas, having a screeching or howling call, and being nocturnal. There is another verse with Se'erim in it that is quite interesting as well. Leviticus 17.7 reads, And they shall no more sacrifice their victims to devils with whom they have committed fornication, with Se'erim being translated as devils. The scholars don't come to any consensus as to the intended meaning of this verse, but of course I don't seriously expect any biblical scholar to just stand up and admit that Moses had to get Aaron to tell the people to stop screwing Neanderthals. Ellicott's commentary admits that the people were worshipping the idols of Pan and other goat-like deities, but claims the fornication was strictly human orgies done as part of this worship. Given that Pan was a fertility god, I have no doubt that orgies probably did take place in his honor. However, the reading to me is pretty clear that the Serum are the object of the fornication, rather the inspiration for the fornication. So, again, I'm pretty sure that Moses had to tell Aaron to tell the people to stop screwing Neanderthals. The Latin Vulgate translates Se'erim as Pelosi, or hairy ones. Interestingly, a form of Se'erim and Pelosi was also used to describe Jacob's twin Esau, leading some to speculate that Esau may have been a representation of a relict hominoid. Esau was covered in red hair and was a hunter, not unlike the more modern reports of Neanderthaloid wildmen. In the Septuagint, Se'erim is translated as Onocentauros, or donkey centaur. Like Se'erim itself, we have little information as to what a donkey centaur actually was. However, Roman author Claudius Aelianus wrote in De Natura Animalium on the nature of animals that they were a kind of tailless ape. How interesting. St. Jerome, who lived in the 4th century AD and was responsible for translating Se'erim as Pelosi, said that Se'erim were incubi, satyrs, or a certain kind of wild men, and that they belong to a race of demons. I did read one scholar who said that Se'erim was mistranslated as goats and instead meant gates, as in, I'm opening the gate. If this is true, I don't necessarily think it precludes Se'erim as a physical being. With the Se'erim living on the edges of human society, it may be that they were named gates because they represented the gateway between human society and the wilderness, aka relative safety to relative danger. From St. Jerome, we also get the interesting story of St. Anthony the Great meeting a satyr on his journey to see St. Paul of Thebes, 
a story which has been memorialized in poetry and art many times since. The story is presented thusly. The blessed Paul had already been living on earth the life of heaven for 113 years, and Anthony at the age of 90 was dwelling in another place of solitude, as he himself was wont to declare, when the thought occurred to the latter that no monk more perfect than himself had settled in the desert. However, in the stillness of the night, it was revealed to him that there was farther in the desert a much better man than he, and that he ought to go out and visit him. So then at break of day, the venerable old man, supporting and guiding his weak limbs with a staff, started to go, but what direction to choose he knew not. Scorching noontide came, with a broiling sun overhead, but still he did not suffer himself to be turned from the journey he had begun. Said he, I believe in my God, some time or other he will show me the fellow servant whom he promised me. He said no more. All at once he beholds a creature of mingled shape, half horse, half man, called by the poets Hippocentaur. At the sight of this, he arms himself by making on his forehead the sign of salvation, and then exclaims, Hloa! Where in these parts is a servant of God living? The monster, after gnashing out some kind of outlandish utterance in words broken rather than spoken through his bristling lips, at length finds a friendly mode of communication, and extending his right hand, points out the desired way. Then, with swift flight, he crosses the spreading plain and vanishes from the sight of his wandering companion. But whether the devil took this shape to terrify him, or whether it be that the desert which is known to abound in monstrous animals engenders that kind of creature also, we cannot decide. Anthony was amazed, and thinking over what he had seen, went on his way. Before long, in a small rocky valley shut in on all sides, he sees a mannequin with a hooked snout, horned forehead, and extremities like goat's feet. When he saw this, Anthony, like a good soldier, seized the shield of faith and the helmet of hope. The creature nonetheless began to offer to him the fruit of the palm trees to support him on his journey, and as it were, pledges of peace. Anthony, perceiving this, stopped and asked who he was. The answer he received from him was this, I am a mortal being and one of those inhabitants of the desert whom the Gentiles, diluted by various forms of air, worship under the names fawns, satyrs, and incubi. I am sent to represent my tribe. We pray you in our behalf to entreat the favor of your Lord and ours, who we have learnt came once to save the world, and whose sound has gone forth into all the earth. As he uttered such words as these, the aged traveler's cheeks streamed with tears, the marks of his deep feeling, which he shed in the fullness of his joy. He rejoiced over the glory of Christ and the destruction of Satan, and marveling all the while that he could understand the satyr's language, and striking the ground with his staff, he said, Woe to you, Alexandria, who instead of God worships monsters. Woe to you, harlot city, into which have flowed together the demons of the whole world. What will you say now? Beasts speak of Christ, and you instead of God worship monsters. He had not finished speaking when, as if on wings, the wild creature fled away. Let no one scruple to believe this incident. Its truth is supported by what took place when Constantine was on the throne, a matter of which the whole world was witness. For a man of that kind was brought alive to Alexandria, and shown as a wonderful sight to the people. Afterwards, his lifeless body, to prevent its decay through the summer heat, was preserved in salt and brought to Antioch, so that the emperor might see it. So from this story, we learned several things. Firstly, the satyr spoke in a different language than Anthony, and Anthony was shocked that he could understand it. 
This may suggest that the language was broken and unrecognizable, similar to the broken language of the hippocentaur. It's hard to know if this was just a different human-like language or a type of language that would not be considered language by modern humans. Secondly, we learn that the satyr has a tribe, a social structure, and is therefore not a completely solitary animal. The social structure of relict hominoids has been the topic of much speculation, as it is typically just the one creature that is encountered in interactions. Obviously, some social structure is required for propagation of the species, but are they as solitary as bears, or do they persist in small tribes like a wolf pack? Chimpanzee troops can have up to 150 members, but I highly doubt that hominoids would be able to live in tribes of 150 and yet remain as hidden as they seem. But numerous Native American traditions refer to Sasquatches in particular as a people, not a creature. So it definitely seems like there is some sort of social structure there. Thirdly, we learn that a satyr was captured and brought to Alexandria, then his body was preserved and taken to Antioch to the emperor. This doesn't convey to us exactly what this creature looked like, but it does convey that it was remarkable enough to be taken to the emperor. From Jewish mythology, we also get the stories of the tower builders and their punishments, the tower being the Tower of Babel, of course. On the whole, the tower builders were punished not just with the infamous confusion of speech, but also with blindness. More specifically, the punishments were divided into at least two, but usually three groups according to culpability. Per the Sanhedrin, those who said, let us ascend and live there, the Lord scattered them. And those who said, let us ascend and fight, turned to apes, spirits, demons, and night demons. And those who said, let us ascend and worship idols, for there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. So there is a tradition of ape-like beings with limited speech and limited vision as a result of their role in the Tower episode. Jewish tradition further identifies the Tower builders as the Nephilim, or giants, which were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, I will heartily admit that I have been strong in the Ralph Ellis position that Nephilim is mistranslated as giants, and that the Nephilim were different from the mighty men of renown who were the offspring. However, I acknowledge that several other texts clarify that the Nephilim are the offspring. It is possible that the two began as separate, but were later conflated, and that conflation was recorded in these later texts. Regardless, the offspring of the sons of God and daughters of men are clearly documented as giants and mighty men of renown. In the book of Enoch, we learn that the sons of God in that equation were the Watchers, the fallen angels led by Azazel. Now, Azazel is a very interesting character. Firstly, he's said to have given metalworking technology to the humans. This is a direct correlation to the Greek satyrs, who were linked to both the god of wine Dionysus and the god of fire and metalworking Hephaestus. Secondly, and more importantly, Azazel was the recipient of the scapegoat ritual, an extremely unusual event in the context of other biblical ritual sacrifices. Two goats were selected. One was given as a traditional burnt offering to the Jewish god Yahweh. The other was sent into the wilderness alive as an appeasement sacrifice for Azazel. This also harkens back to Pan with the sacrifice of a goat at the Roman Lupercalia festival. Perhaps the most interesting resource listed by Bayanoff in his article is a small book written in the 17th century by an Italian priest named Ludovico Maria Sinistrari. 
Sinistrari was a Franciscan priest and advisor to the Roman Curia, specializing in matters of exorcism and demonology. The book is called Demoniality, essentially the demon version of bestiality, and is a tract on the sinfulness of sexual relations with incubi and succubi. In it, he includes several interesting facts and stories that he uses to come to some even more interesting conclusions. I'm happy to say I now own a hard copy of this little beauty, and for around $10, you can too, if any of this interests you. It's short but dense, but I definitely plan on coming back to it multiple times to really absorb all of the information included. Now, given that it is a tract on demoniality, Sinistrari focuses heavily on the sexual nature of the incubi and succubi demons. One thing I found very interesting is that the incubi are said to mate not only with humans, but also with horses, specifically mares. I wonder very much if this influenced the original association between satyrs and horses in particular, since the original depictions of the satyrs show them with horses' tails. I'm not sure why any species other than horses would be mating with horses, regardless of their mythological status or not, but I also don't understand incest or bestiality or most fetishes in humans, actually, so I'm probably not the person to comment on the boinking. Sinistrari goes on to discuss how the incubi can be quite brutal if the target of their affections resists, but will actually be quite gentle and even braid the hair of the horse if the affections are tolerated. There, I'm reminded of the stories of leprechauns braiding the hair of horses, and I wonder if the leprechauns and incubi are actually related, or if Sinistrari was incorporating a myth that originally belonged to the leprechauns. Sinistrari mentions three other local names for incubi. In Italian, it's the Folletti, in Spanish, the Duendes, and in French, the Foyer. All of these names translate to fairy, leprechaun, or goblin, so perhaps there is more connection between all of these myths but I didn't do any specific research on that thread. The most interesting conclusion that Sinistrari comes to, and thus the reason he is cited by Bayanoff, is that incubi are actually animals, and he comes to this conclusion for two main reasons. First, unlike other types of demons, they do not respond in any way to holy relics, prayers, or exorcisms. Sinistrari uses the original Greek definition of daimon or demon, which is morally neutral. The Greek had additional terms, cacao diamond and u diamond, to clarify if a diamond was evil or good. The incubi are diamonds in the Greek sense, not demons in the later Christian sense. They have no reverence or even understanding of religious concepts or items. This is unlike other types of demons experienced by those priests like Sinistrari who dealt with exorcisms regularly. Second, the incubi are capable of begetting children who are, quote, tall, very hardy and bold, very proud and wicked. The prevailing theory at the time regarding incubi and succubi was that the demon would take the form of a succubus to obtain the semen from a human male, then would morph into the form of an incubus to inject the semen into the human female. Sinistrari concludes this is impossible because the half-breed children of incubi are very clearly differentiated from those that are fully human, something that would not happen if a human sperm impregnated a human egg, regardless of whether or not a demon was the middleman. This description of the children of incubi harkens back to the biblical descriptions of the children begotten from the sons of God and the daughters of man, which are essentially described as Greek demigods. They're exceptionally tall and strong and are men of great renown. Based on this and other supporting evidence, 
Sinistrari concludes that the Incubi are the sons of God, which mated with the daughters of man. Not only that, he says that women are continuing to mate with Incubi in his day, which I guess, duh, considering he felt the need to write the book, but this wasn't a phenomenon relegated to the time of the book of Genesis. Regarding the size of the half-breed children, I'm reminded of ligers and tigans. In ligers, a male lion and a female tiger produce an offspring that is larger than both parent species. In tigans, a female lion and a male tiger produce an offspring which is slightly smaller than the smaller parent species, the lion, but doesn't exhibit dwarfism. If we apply this formula, we would expect the offspring from the female human, the smaller species, and the male incubus, the larger species, to produce an offspring smaller than humans. However, as more crossbreeding occurs in the captive setting, we're learning that not all species crossbreed in the same way. Pumas and leopards have offspring that exhibit dwarfism, regardless of which parent is of which species. So we cannot look strictly to the example of ligers and tigans to predict how the offspring of incubi and humans would grow. We'll just have to trust thousands of years of observation coded in mythology instead. Regardless, Sinistrari confirms that incubi demons have bodies. They eat, they grow, they die. He does claim that they are more intelligent, live longer, and are less prone to disease than humans. But he bases this conclusion on the theory of the four elements, not empirical data or even anecdotal reports. So we will definitely have to take that with many grains of salt. The final point of Sinistrari's work that I find fascinating is that he comments on John 10.16. A use the Dewey Rames translation is that would be most in line with Sinistrari's understanding of the Bible. And other sheep I have that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Most scholars and commentaries understand this verse as dividing Jew from Gentile, indicating that the Gentiles were the ones not of this fold. Sinistrari disagrees with this understanding, citing many references to prophecies about Jesus in Gentile literature, as well as the fact that the Gentile magi were present at the birth of Jesus and that the Holy Family hid in Gentile Egypt following the birth, where Mary presented the news of Jesus' birth to the Gentiles before the Jews. Based on this, Sinistrari feels that the Gentiles were always a part of Jesus' fold, so to speak. So he instead speculates that the ones not of the fold were the incubi demons. He references St. Jerome's story of the satyr asking St. Anthony to pray for them as corroborating evidence. I don't have a conclusion on this particular point, but I do think it's fascinating to think about. Now that we have the context of Sinistrari, I want to revisit the death of the god Pan. This famous story comes from a single source, Plutarch. Specifically, this story is found in his essay De Defecto Oraculorum, or On the Failure of the Oracles. Christians have interpreted this story as signaling the end of paganism and the rise of Christ, Others have interpreted as announcing the death of Christ, who they understood as Pan in the sense of Pan as all. Still others have suggested that they actually misheard the news, and it was the death of the Sumerian god Tammuz which was being announced, as Tammuz's death is recorded in other sources. Reading it in the context of Sinistrari and our other sources, I interpret this differently. Whilst Heracleon was musing and studying how to answer this, Cleom Brodus went on saying, it is not only Empedocles 
who confirms there are bad demons, but even Plato, Xenocrates, and Chrysippus, yea, and Democritus, when he prayed he might meet with good spirits, which shows that he thought there were bad as well as good demons. And as to their mortality, I have heard it reported from a person that was neither fool nor knave, being Epithersis, the father of Emilianus, the orator, who some of you have heard declaim. This Epithersis was my townsman and a schoolmaster, who told me that, designing a voyage to Italy, he embarked himself on a vessel well laden both with goods and passengers. About the evening, the vessel was becalmed about the Isles Echinades, whereupon their ship drove with the tide till it was carried near the Isles of Paxi, when immediately a voice was heard by most of the passengers, who were then awake and taking a cup after supper, calling unto one famous, and that was so loud a voice as made all the company amazed, which Thamus was a mariner of Egypt, whose name was scarcely known on the ship. He returned no answer to the first calls, but at the third he replied, Here, here, I am the man. Then the voice said aloud to him, When you are arrived at Palades, take care to make it known that the great god Pan is dead. Epithersis told us this voice did much astonish all that heard it, and caused much arguing whether this voice was to be obeyed or slighted. Thamus, for his part, was resolved, if the wind permitted, to sail by the place without saying a word. But if the wind ceased and there ensued a calm, to speak and cry out as loud as he was able what he was enjoined. Being come to Palades, there was no wind stirring, and the sea was as smooth as glass. Whereupon Thamus, standing on the deck, with his face towards the land, uttered with a loud voice his message, saying, The great Pan is dead." He had no sooner said this, but they heard a dreadful noise, not only of one, but of several, who, to their thinking, groaned and lamented with a kind of astonishment. And there being many persons in the ship, an account of this was soon spread over Rome, which made Tiberius the emperor send for Thamus, and he seemed to give such heed to what he told him, that he earnestly inquired who this pan was, and the learned men about him gave in their judgments, that it was the son of Mercury by Penelope. There were some then in the company who declared they had heard old Emilianus say as much. We get some interesting points here. First and foremost, Plutarch says that Pan is a demon and that Pan is mortal. Thus, transitive property, demons, at least of the type that Pan was, are mortal. This squares with the conclusion that Sinistrari came to as well. The reaction of the people is quite interesting to me. They groaned and lamented, which I would not expect from a polytheistic people who had plenty of other more powerful deities to choose from. If I were to read more context into it, this almost seems like the change of control in a mob family. It's like they're announcing the death of a mob boss who was equal parts feared and respected, but they're groaning because they know his son is about to take over who's truly brutal. Obviously, that's a liberal interpretation, highly colored by my exposure to modern media, but it makes me wonder if the death of Pan signified something more significant to the practical everyday lives of these people, something beyond the mere religious, particularly of a minor deity. From all of these sources, we can develop a portrait of sorts of the entity we are comparing against. The protosator has a human-like figure, but is covered in hair. It is quite sexual, either in behavior or perhaps in physical form, appearing in the ithophallic state depicted in the original satyr art. The proto-satyr is seemingly nocturnal, with limited daytime vision. 
It has limited speech abilities and may sound like screeching, howling, whistling, or even flute playing to the untrained ear. It inhabits the areas where humans are not, whether this be forests, caves, or human ruins. It also accepts goats as gifts, suggesting at least an omnivorous, if not fully carnivorous, diet. Now that we have this profile, we can compare against what we know of relict hominoids. As I've mentioned before on this podcast, in the field guide to Bigfoot, Yeti, and other mystery primates worldwide, cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman divides these mystery primates into nine categories. For example, Sasquatch as we know him, well, her, from the Patterson-Gilman film, falls into the Neo-Giant category. I believe the protoceder is probably based on a combination of the true giant and the Neanderthaloid-type hominoids, as described by Coleman, though there may also be some influence from the erectus hominid type as well. In ancient times, the true giant and Neanderthaloid types would have been more common in Europe and the Mediterranean, whereas the erectus hominid would have come more from Central Asia. Lauren Coleman provides this description of the true giant. For creatures said to be 10 to 20 feet tall, the term true giants is most appropriate. The big bodies of true giants are remarkably lean, if not lanky, and are covered with reddish brown or darker hair that is longer in the head and thinner on the arms. They appear to have no neck and their facial features are flat. They have enormous flat hands. Their feet measure about 10 inches wide by 21 inches long or longer, and they have four visible toes. If they have a fifth vestigial toe, it does not show up in most prints. True giants are reported in wooded mountain areas around the world, mostly in temperate zones. A large body of international folktales recounts the interactions, communication, warfare, and eventually estrangement between native peoples and true giants. Though they are said to be omnivorous and have a reputation as man-eaters, the cannibals of bygone days, they have tended to avoid confrontation with humans in recent times. True giants occasionally wear primitive clothing, especially in the colder climates, and they often sport wooden clubs or stone weapons. Reports suggest they live in caves with concealed entrances and sleep in depressions they make in the ground. While basically nocturnal, these creatures are occasionally seen during the day if there is enough tree cover to keep them hidden from most observers. The movement of true giants tends to look wobbly to observers, who sometimes report sounds coming from these creatures, perhaps a primitive form of language. And then we have Coleman's description of the Neanderthaloid. They average about six feet tall and have a stocky, muscular build. Their bodies sport a reddish hair, and males generally have abundant facial hair, often with a fringe beard. The beards of this class are a clear diagnostic trait. All Neanderthaloids have heavy brow ridges and a large, broad nose. Neanderthaloids are shy but curious, avoiding most contact with humans. This retiring behavior may be interpreted as a sign of intelligence. They are sometimes seen wearing skins and often make elaborate use of primitive-looking weapons such as axes, bows, and arrows. Their habits are diurnal or crepuscular, meaning active in the twilight times of dawn and dusk, their homes limited to shelters and caves, and their calls suggestive of a primitive form of communication. I believe most of the interactions humans had were probably with Neanderthaloid types, as these are more human in appearance, behavior, and intelligence. For example, the Neanderthaloids, with their strong build and reddish hair all over their bodies, are probably the basis for the character of Esau, if the theory of Esau being a hominoid is to be believed. 
The true giants may have accounted for some of the experiences, particularly under the cover of night. The true giants in particular, I would relate to the folklore regarding the tower builders with blindness, most likely being a description of their nocturnally inclined eyesight. The most obvious folkloric example of the true giant would be Grendel from the story of Beowulf, which obviously is nothing like the satyrs and the incubi. Regarding the sexual aspects of the proto-satyr, there are a couple of reasons this may be the case. One reason may be simply physical. The erectus hominid type, as described by Coleman, has a visibly semi-erect penis. It's possible that this characteristic of the erectus hominid type was incorporated into the proto-satyr mythology. It might be, however, a product of their behavior. The incubus and succubus of legend would come in the night to sit on your chest and suffocate you or to seduce you. This may be influenced from actual hominoid behavior. From Lauren Coleman's field guide, we also get an interesting story out of Croatia in 1870. During the cold winter, two brothers slept together in a cold stable. In the middle of one night, one brother awoke when he felt as if there was someone between the two of them. When he touched it, it felt hairy and warm, and at first he thought it was their dog. Then slightly brushing against a breast made him realize that it was a female. Suddenly frightened, he called his brother. The hairy female quickly made for the door, and the two brothers followed her out into the courtyard. She was quicker than they were, however, and jumped over the fence to the garden and on into the woods. The deep snow forced the brothers to give up their chase, but they saw the woman quite clearly in the moonlight. It was a wuduwasa one of the hairy beings somewhat lower than humans who lived in the woods. Later, when they told their father about the incident, he expressed little surprise. It was common for them to warm themselves besides humans during cold winters, he explained. These nightly visits for the purpose of warmth could have been misinterpreted as a sexual advance, and the legend grew from there. In regards to their speech, there is some interesting new scientific research to suggest that Neanderthals had the ability to understand and produce human-like speech, based on the ear structure similarity to that of humans. We must also consider that Neanderthals had larger brains by volume than humans, suggesting perhaps similar to human-level intelligence. Based on the ear structure and intelligence, it does seem at least possible that Neanderthaloid-type hominoids could mimic human speech, whether or not they had a language of their own. In 1917, an elderly wild man was found in Heard County, Georgia, the federal authorities in Atlanta brought the French consul Dr. F.E. May, a polyglot himself, to meet the wild man in an attempt to ascertain what language he might speak, to no avail. Dr. May said, he understands nothing I speak, he speaks nothing I understand. To me, this suggests he must have spoken some form of language beyond just whistles and groans. It just so happened that that language was not understandable as any language spoken by humans at the time. When we look at the modern stories of relic hominoids, they often occur in forests. When thinking of Sasquatch, for example, we typically think of the thick forests of the Pacific Northwest. That's not the only places that we have stories of relic hominoids, however. Here are two stories of wild men which link them to both caves and human ruins. The first story comes from Mount Sterling, Illinois in 1922. A wild man living in a cave near here is thwarting all efforts of police and armed citizens to capture him and is keeping the countryside in terror with his raids on outlying farms. A price has been set on his head, but desperate attempts to capture him in his lair have proved vain. The wild man recently made a series of bold robberies near Mount Pleasant, carrying off calves and sheep to a deserted mine where he stays hidden in the daytime. Ambrose Smith, a dead shot and a tireless hunter, 
was seriously wounded in a terrific hand-to-hand encounter with the mysterious man-monster. The wild man has long, wiry hair that bristles about his savage-looking face, Smith said in his home, where he is recovering from the adventure. In the uncertain light of the cave, I made him out to be a great towering creature. His hands are thin, and the flesh is stretched over the bones like leather. The story goes on to explain how Smith tried to haul in the wild man, but took quite a beating. He said that the two tussled for an hour before he was knocked out, but that's probably just ego talking. Other stories of one-on-one physical contests between wild men and humans always put wild men as the victor. The second story is from my home state of Georgia in 1888. From the Atlanta Constitution, we read, Harris County is absorbed in the sensational mystery which was unearthed near there yesterday. Half a mile west of this place, on a high and rugged peak of the Pine Mountain, is an old Indian fort built of stone, and owing to the ruggedness of the mountain, approachable on only one side. Its high, thick stone wall and its peculiar situation made it quite a stronghold for the Indians in time of war. For many years, it has been remembered by only a few hunters and older settlers. So deeply was it buried in the mountains. Recently, however, the neighbors who had been attributing the loss of livestock to the sheepdog and the deft-handed insert slur for black person here have had cause to suppose the old fort to be inhabited by thieves. Tuesday night, Mr. B.G. Witten passed near the mountain on his return from a neighbor's house and heard the piteous cries of one of his goats as it seemed to be carried up the mountainside to the old fort on the summit. Investigation disclosed signs of habitation and resulted in a band of half a dozen neighbors yesterday forcing an entrance and capturing a man in the most abject state of barbarism. He showed fight and was felled to the ground twice with the butt of a gun. With great difficulty, his hands and feet were securely tied. He had no weapons and was dressed in nature's garments. A thick stubby hair has grown all over his body, his full black beard reaches to his waist, and his long unkempt hair hangs down his back and about his shoulders. He has keen black eyes that seem unaccustomed to the light of day, and since capture he has not uttered a sound. He seems a man of 40 years old, 6 foot 2 or 3 inches in height, and weighs about 200 pounds. There is not a pound of surplus flesh about him, all is bone and muscle, and his strength is marvelous. His hands are talons, and his India rubber feet scarcely resemble the feet of a human. He was carried by the sheriff in the morning to Hamilton, where it is thought ordinary Williams will adjudge him insane and have him sent to the asylum. Typical of wild man stories from this time period, the article goes on to describe a local man who went missing some years before, and it speculates that the two are the same. As I don't know of a single reason that becoming feral should lead to hypertrichosis in a typical human, I strongly contend that this is an example of a Neanderthaloid-type wild man living in a formerly human building in rural Georgia. You'll notice in a couple of the modern wild man stories I have relayed that livestock is being taken. That is extremely common in modern wild man stories and is the reason I believe it's plausible that goats or other livestock may have been given to these beings as a sacrifice. Better to give a small amount to the wild man in advance rather than suffer bigger losses when they grow hungry and come hunting of their own accord. Dmitry Bayanov in his article notes that shepherds in Russia were said to have made exactly these types of deals with the devil. It is reported that in Russia, they made secret contracts with wood goblins, another name for hominoid wild man, who helped pasture the herd, find lost cows, and protect them from wolves and bears. The service was paid for with food and animals from the herd. 
Such deals were popular with the peasants, but kept strictly secret because they were viewed as sinful by the Orthodox Church. These types of deals would very easily explain the association between Pan and shepherding and between Azazel and the ritual gift of the scapegoat. I also think Bionov's story highlights how the rural populations have traditionally been more pagan in their practices, if not their beliefs outright, because they live on the edges of civilization and they deal with the realities of the natural world. Not surprising, really, given that the etymology of the word pagan is the Latin paganus, meaning rural or country people. So, Do I believe that the satyrs, etc. of ancient mythology are actually historical, albeit poetic, representations of relict hominoids? Yes, of course. As much as I try to be impartial when I do this research, I cannot claim impartiality even remotely on this topic. The other reason, admittedly, that I really want to believe this is true is because deep down I am a bit of a chaotic shitlord. Because if this is true, that means that a number of the pagans and so-called Satanists that are worshipping Pan or attempting to convene with the Incubi demons because they hate their Christian upbringing are actually worshipping Neanderthals, and I find that hilarious and I will not apologize for that. I also really appreciate the irony that the Lake Worth monster was described as a satyr now that I know that the satyr really was just a wild man. I'm sure that's not what Jim Mars was thinking when he used the descriptor, but how fitting nonetheless. The more interesting aspect to me is what else this affects downstream. What does this mean for the Salem witch trials where women were supposedly dancing with the devil in the woods at night? What does this mean for the work of the documentary series Hellier, where they were linking the god Pan to the cave being phenomenon that may have been an outcropping of the phenomenon as described by John Keel? I don't know, but I want to know. I'm sure as my research progresses through the decades, more light will be shown on all of these topics. But for now, I'll just have to leave those questions unanswered. Also, can you imagine how hard it is going to be to send my kids to school? I mean, I can see it now, them spouting off to their teachers about how the Jews were Egyptian pharaohs and the satyrs were actually Neanderthals that, by the way, still exist. I'm going to get called into so many parent-teacher conferences. Bless their little hearts for getting me as a mom. Before concluding, I want to add a few words on the green man and other such concepts. The green man can refer to a man covered in a greenery, which is associated with May Day festivals, or a face of a man covered in greenery. Typically, the full man version is found in Britain, but the foliate head version can be found all across Europe and Asia Minor and even into India. Some have linked the green man and the Wiccan horned god to the Celtic deity Cernunos and to the Greek god Pan. I have not included any of that possible link in this research because The history of the green man is kind of shadowy, actually, and I wouldn't feel confident coming to any conclusions. That being said, as it is a man-like figure associated with forests and fertility, it's not unreasonable to think that there may be a similar link there. I have also limited my research to stay away from the leprechauns, the trolls, pretty much all of British, Celtic, and Germanic mythology, simply for time. Books upon books could and will be written about this subject. For now, we'll just keep asking questions, and hopefully I will see y'all sooner rather than later with an episode on the Kentucky Meat Shower. And in the meantime, I'm going to go take some medicine. 